So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the fourth chapter, verses 9 through 13. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will hear you, lest, I'm sorry, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And may the Lord bless that reading of his word to his under, to our understanding. Let's ask him to illuminate it for us. Pray with me. Our dear Lord, as we wrap up these temptations, um, and especially with this one, May, first of all, we see the, the, the depth or the, the, the extent of the evil that is being presented to Jesus as he resists this temptation. Let us understand what that temptation is, but then let us also look to ourselves and ask ourselves the question that just really should pop out of this. Are we indeed also putting you to the test? Lord, may May, may you teach us um, what an egregious error sin that actually is. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said this morning, we return to our discussion of the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness as we return to Luke after several weeks off. Now, I realize that because we haven't been studying this for the last couple of weeks, that probably what's going on as far as the flow of things has gone a little bit cold in your mind. But I I, I want to spend as much time this morning as I can on the actual temptation itself. And I tell you why. It's because I think of all three temptations, this is the one that most universally impacts Christians. I mean, Jesus is the one that's going through these temptations. But one of the things we're doing is learning the methodology of the enemy. And it's the same methodology that he uses against us today. And I think that most of us put God to the test far more than we actually realize. So therefore, I'm going to be very, very um, uh, slight on our review, um, and, and I'm going to really sort of pick up where we are in the first two temptations as we go through the text and we make comparisons. So just very briefly, uh, we are at the beginning of, of, of Jesus' ministry. Many people think we're still in Luke's prologue. Well, we'll definitely come to the end of that um, this morning. And Jesus has just been baptized, and of course, you know, the Father affirms that you You are my son and I am well pleased in you during that baptism. The Holy Spirit then leads Jesus into the desert for a time of testing. The Holy Spirit tests. He never tempts. 
But the devil is right there to take care of the tempting aspect. And Luke makes it clear to us that um, during these 40 days in the desert, it's not like there were three temptations. I mean, that last 13th verse I just read, I ought to kind of set the tone that during the entire 40 days, Satan, like a, a, a dog yapping at his heels, is slinking through the shadows and tempting him constantly. But he waited until he's emaciated, until he is uh, weak at his weakest in a human context for these three great temptations. The first one, of course, was to take care of his physical needs, to alleviate his hunger. But underneath it, we know that he's really asking Jesus to doubt his father, to doubt his sustenance, and even to doubt his very love for him. And then in the second one, he flashed the key kingdoms of the world in front of Jesus in a ridiculous attempt to make Jesus worship him. But then, and I'll bring it out later, it it was a real temptation in the way that it was presented. And then now we are going to see the third as Jesus is tempted to put his father to the test. Now, one of the things that comes up often when you're studying the Gospel of Luke is why did Luke rearrange the order of these temptations? There are three of them. Matthew, probably written before Luke, uh, and probably Luke had Matthew as a reference, or at least he had the same source that Matthew had because some of the text is so very similar. So why did he rearrange this text? Well, there are a lot of different theories, and I'm not going to go into those theories right now. I'm just going to tell you kind of the way I see it. I, I think that Luke is doing it because he's building a crescendo of as far as the the nature of this temptation. As I said, he starts out with Jesus' personal situation, his body, his needs, and then it moves to Jesus as the king and and tempts him to, to, to give up his kingdom of glory and accept these tawdry kings that Satan flashes in front of him. And we asked ourselves, what kind of a real temptation was that? Well, when you start thinking not about the glitter and the gleam of those cities, but the souls of the people who were in those cities and what Jesus has come to do, you can start to see why that was such a real temptation. Well, I believe that's really where Luke is leading us. And here is going to be the culmination of that particular vein, which I think is the real temptation is how can you be the Messiah? How can you be the king without the cross? And we know from other places of temptation that this was what at least Satan thinks is Jesus' weakest link, and so he's going to attack it. And that is going to be made very clear this morning. So with that said, in a very brief overview, let's jump right into the text and see about this third temptation. Look in verse 9. And he, he being the devil, took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now let's just kind of hold it right there. And let's identify the location of this temptation. It's all important. 
First of all, when we were looking at the last temptation, and I'm sure you don't remember it, but we, we asked the question, well, in what way did Satan transport Jesus? Was this a bodily transport or was it in a vision? And I'm not going to go into it this morning, but we came to the conclusion that more than likely it made more sense that it was indeed a vision, a very real vision. It didn't diminish the temptation any at all, the fact that it was a, vi- a vision, but rather than a physical transportation. More than likely, this is a vision, although we cannot be for sure about that because the text doesn't tell us. But far more important than how Satan got Jesus where he got him is where he took him. And that's where we want to focus on because he took him to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, as you know, is the holy city. It is the Zion of old. It is the place where God met his people. The temple is there. It's the city of David. We cannot overemphasize the importance of Jerusalem to the Jews of this day. But what it does for this temptation is it brings the entire redemptive plan of God into focus. In other words, the last temptations, we're talking about the kingdoms of of this world. But now, because we're at Jerusalem and later on in the temple or on the temple, we are going to see that the whole idea of the mission and purpose of why Jesus is here, the eternal plan of redemption that has been in place ever since Genesis 3.15 is coming to its head and all of that is going to be engaged in this particular temptation. So it is of the greatest significance that it is in Jerusalem. And then we read that it is on the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, we're going to come back to the word pinnacle. There's a word play there and I'll explain it later on. But that location probably was what, and and just guessing because it doesn't tell us, probably the southeast corner of the temple complex. You know, the temple complex is built on on the side of a mountain. Really, it kind of tops the mountain. Well, the southeast corner, which is where the porticos of Solomon and what's called the royal portico come together. There's a parapet there. And right there on top of that parapet, you look down and it's about 500 feet. Because in that particular spot, it's not just the height of the temple. It's literally kind of built on a cliff. And so it would be the most dramatic spot because any human being that jumped off of there is going to die because there's nothing but rocks below. Even when we were there, uh, uh, and, and you can't actually get to the same place because they've reconfigured the temple. But even when we were there, there was enough space, uh, you know, after centuries of the Kidron Valley kind of uh, filling in, there would have been easy that that fall would have killed a man. So this was a place that was actually quite dramatic um, in in that sense. But I believe it goes beyond just that. I don't believe that the only reason that he took him to the temple was just because that was such a great high place. I mean, there's plenty of other places around that area that he could have taken him. In fact, the very next passage where we actually start the ministry of Jesus, we're going to go to Nazareth. And and at the end of that passage, they're going to try to throw Jesus off a cliff. You know, so Satan could have easily taken Jesus to that cliff and said, "Okay, you know, throw yourself off because they're going to try to throw you off. 
off in just a couple of, of weeks, if you will. Well, well, anyway, he didn't do that because there's more to being at the temple. Of course, the temple is where all salvation uh, is, where the sacrificial system was. It is where the, the 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 light of the world was, the menorah, the 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 bread of life, the showbread table. It's where the holy of holies was. It is where God came to be in the midst of His people to accept the sacrifices to atone for sins, so that there would be um, forgiveness of sins. It was the most important place as far as redemption was concerned on the face of the planet, coming up to that point. Now, Jesus stands on the parapet. In a New Testament context, Jesus is the temple. Remember what we read in the second chapter of John. Jesus said, you tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days, talking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the new menorah, the bread, I mean, the light of the world. He's the bread of life. He's the holy of holies. He actually is Emmanuel. Now, Prior to that, the temple is Emmanuel principle, God with us. But Jesus is indeed God with us. So there's a lot more going on with Jesus standing on top of the temple than just a man looking for a, a, a place to fall from. Oh, but brothers and sisters, there, there's something else there that I, I hope that we can see. By the time of Jesus, Satan had corrupted the temple and temple worship to the point where it was almost unrecognizable. I mean, when Jesus came, I mean, he found the temple in the clutches of the Sadducees, of men like Annas and Caiaphas, who had turned into a business, who had turned into a shrine. Satan had been successful in corrupting the entire sacrificial system of temple worship. And now he's going to try to corrupt the new temple, the the, the, the new place where God resides. And so it's a hugely significant location that he takes him to up on that southeast corner. Well, let's take a look at what happens. He took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Now, once again, we see that Satan starts his temptation out with that question, if you are the son of God. Remember, he did that earlier in the first temptation. And God had just said at the baptism, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan is saying the same thing he said to Eve. Did he really say that? You think you heard him correctly? Trying to drive a wedge between Jesus and his father. Trying to create doubt in the father and his goodness and his sustenance. I mean, after all, he took care of the children of Israel by giving them manna. Here he's letting you starve. He doesn't give you anything. Is he really your father? Are you really the Messiah? And so he, he, he starts that same process over again. But I think there's a nuance of difference here. You, you may remember... We talked about this. I'm not going to go anywhere into the detail that I did last time. But this is what's known as a false premise in, in formal logic. Usually when you have a condition, there's a consequent. And when the condition evaluates to true, usually the consequent is, 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 a, is, is executed. Certainly in programming, it always is. If then, the then situation, the then statement is always done. Unless the entire premise is false. 
And that's what's wrong here. In other words, Satan, not out and out lying. He's not just twisting scripture as he will later on. What he's trying to do is to trick Jesus through a logical fallacy by saying, if you're the son of God, then it will follow that you will turn these stones into bread. Well, no, actually, it doesn't follow. That's not a necessity of the completion of the condition. And so, therefore, it's a false premise. He does the same thing here. If you are the son of God, then you'll throw yourself off. No, that doesn't follow. In fact, it would follow exactly opposite as we are going to see. That is not the conclusion of that if statement. So, therefore, Satan is... Still playing his games, still trying to switch things up on Jesus to try to to confuse him. But once again, brothers and sisters, I want you to see this. Please just pay attention to this because Satan is revealing one of his most diabolical tricks. Satan is the master of the switch. Okay, in other words, you can resist a temptation And as soon as you resist the temptation, he's going to tempt exactly where your resisting was. In other words, the first two temptations, he's trying to tempt Jesus into not believing, not trusting his father and worshiping him. And now it's almost like he says, "Okay, Jesus, you're going to stand firm. You're going to believe in your father. That's great. You know something? Let's accept it. You are the Messiah. Now let's see how we can manipulate your father with that fact. I remember Dr. Kennedy used to tell the story to to, uh, illuminate this. He says, you know, he he was the other day I was driving down A1A and this really pretty girl walked right in front of me in a bikini. And I didn't look. I didn't do the sort of what is it, the mandatory male ogle, you know. Uh, I, I didn't look. And then as soon as I didn't look, boy, Satan hit me with pride. He hit my pride. You see, I was successful in resisting one temptation, but that just led me right into another one. And that's exactly what Satan's doing here with Jesus. He's resisted the temptation to to deny his father, to doubt his father, to worship Satan. And now he's going to attack that exact thing by switching it to the other end. And that's how diabolical, actually, that is how bad our... Our enemy is and how brilliant he actually is. Well, let's see what he does. He says, throw yourself down from here. Now, basically, that's pretty straightforward. That's what he wants Jesus to do. Later on, we're going to ask what his objectives were. What did he want to accomplish by having Jesus throw himself down? But it's pretty straightforward. That's what he wants him to do. He wants him to throw himself down from that pinnacle. And he's going to quote scripture. But before we actually look at the quote, I want to talk about, and I just kind of breezed over it earlier, I want to talk about that word play uh, when, when he says, and he took him to the pinnacle of the temple. Luke, Luke has a, a, a play that Greek speakers would recognize, but we, we of course don't. It's not even in our language. The same word that is translated pinnacle, see pinnacle just simply means little wing. Okay, and so therefore it's the little wing of that greater pro, uh, of a complex where he goes. But that same word is used in Psalm 91 and we read it. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. 
Psalm 91, it is, and I've said this earlier, is one of the most glorious, comforting, encouraging psalms where the Father expresses his solidarity with his Messiah. It's well known to be a messianic psalm. And here, Satan is going to try to use that psalm that speaks of solidarity to twist the situation, which is what he does in the next verses. Look in verse 10. For he will command, oh, I'm sorry, for it is written. Don't miss that. Okay, he's doing what Jesus did, sort of mocking him. You know, it is written. That's the way so often quoting scripture starts out. For it is written, then he quotes from Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Before we actually look at what he's doing, let's just address the fact, and I know that every time you've heard a message on this or studied it yourself, this is one of the things that you notice, but don't get too familiar with this. I just want to address the fact that Satan is quoting scripture, okay? That in and of itself is an amazing thought, but I want you to recognize this, and we need to recognize this so that we can recognize our enemy. Satan knows scripture better than you do, better than I do, better than any single human being on this planet. Satan knows scripture. Uh, I said when we were studying Matthew and we looked at this temptation, I said, I bet you that Satan can quote every word of scripture exactly the way that it was revealed by the Holy Spirit in Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek from one cover to the next. But even beyond that, there's something like 500 languages in the world today, somewhere around there. And I would say that he can probably quote every word of scripture from one end of the Bible to the other in every one of those languages. Some of those languages have 40, 50, and 60 dialects. So long story short, Satan can more than likely, at least in my understanding of his brilliance, will be able to quote to every single person on earth the Bible inside and out. That shows us something. It shows us that that is the most glaring example that knowing scripture intellectually is not enough. I read scholars all the time, and I tell you this all the time. They're wonderful scholarship. They go into the history and the word studies, but they don't they, they don't believe in the Bible. They, they don't believe it's true. They don't believe it's the word of God. And so you have to ignore their conclusions. But Satan is not quoting scripture to honor God, to 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 hold on to the truths that are there. He's utilizing it as... A, Every heretic would. So, second thing I want you to notice about just the fact that he quotes scripture is the extraordinary, literally astounding arrogance of this. Just think about it. Here this fallen, wicked, evil creature is quoting the word of God to the word of God. To the Logos. To the word of God incarnate. incarnate. He's the living word. He was there when it was written. He has known it for all eternity past. And here Satan is not only quoting it to the living word. He's misquoting it 
and he's selectively quoting it. Brothers and sisters, that's astounding arrogance. But thirdly, I think he kind of gives us a, a lesson in heresy because what he does is, and I've tried to make this clear already, we'll make it clear as we go along, what he does is he misquotes this. He doesn't only misquote it, he badly misquotes it. And it's, it's not that he he misquotes the words. He is selective, and we'll get to that in a moment. But it's not that he quotes it differently. It, it is that he uses it out of context to make a point that is fundamentally opposite of the point that is being made by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 91 when the psalm is seen in its entirety. So he is misquoting it. And of course, that shows us that's sort of a primer in how to identify heresy because you know the old adage, every heretic has his or her favorite verse. But brothers and sisters, it brings the significance of having spiritual discernment home to us. It's not just to, to know scripture. We have to know the context that scripture is being given in because it is possible. Well, I'm going to be careful the way I say this. It is possible for the words of the word to be spoken in such a context that they do not relate the intent or the will of God. They're his words. They're still the word of God. But they are given in a way on the lips of a heretic or a false teacher. They can be made to mean exactly opposite of what God intended for them to mean. And boy, that's why we have to be wary of false teachers of the wolves in sheep's clothing. Because they know scripture and they use it to their advantage. But it's always like this. It's always taking it out of context, using it in a particular way. And and we're thankful for this particular example because he completely misses the essence of what this is. Okay, with that said, let's kind of focus now on what he says here in Psalm 91. And and and, and the reason I wanted Clayton to, to read it and the reason we read it in our, our responsive reading is because I wanted you to see just how solid this is as far as the relationship between father and son. There's nothing that you can use in this psalm that would give Jesus the right to put his father to the test, even though that's the way that Satan is trying to use it. Look at the 14th and 15th verses of Psalm 91. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. Um, When he calls to me, I will answer him. Where in that do you get some kind of a scriptural uh, 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 saying it's okay, I can't think of the right word, but a scriptural mandate that you can do something opposite of what your father has said. And if we read the verses that he actually quotes in their broader context, this is what we read. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. How do you make the Lord your dwelling place? What kind of relationship does that talk about? It talks about a a close one, a bond between them. No evil shall befall you or be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, there's one thing I'm not sure that you caught there. Did you catch the selective reading? 
Did you look closely at verse 11 and the way that uh, Satan quoted that? Here's the way that Satan quotes it. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And that's where he stops. Did he really think Jesus, the word of God, the living word, didn't recognize that he left a phrase out? In all your ways. So what does that mean? Why would... I mean, he brings attention to it in the fact that he eliminated it. He tells, he quotes before it and he quotes after it, but he leaves that phrase out. Why do you think he did that? Because that is a phrase that talks about the providence of God and the sovereignty of God guarding his son in every aspect of his life, all through his life, good and bad, whether it's the suffering on the cross or where it's the glory on the, 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 um, <clears throat> the transfiguration. He is always with his son, never, ever turning his back on him. That is the promise of scripture. And Jesus is going to take that and say, you know something? I don't need to put my father to the test. I, I, I don't need to do that. True faith, brothers and sisters, let me give you a principle. I'll repeat it later on. True faith does not need proof. You don't put true faith to the test. You don't need God to prove himself. God, if you are real, then I want you to prove myself. Now, of course, I know there's places in Scripture putting up a fleece and those kinds of things, but I'm I'm not even going to go into them. They're a separate situation. In the way that Jesus was responding here, he tells the devil, I don't need to put my father to the test because I believe what he said. In other words, he said he will guard me in all my ways. I don't have to check that out and see if he actually will do it by jumping off this parapet. Okay, I I, I trust him. I believe in him. And brothers and sisters, if we don't, we're going to see that doubt is exactly the same as putting God to the text. In fact, brothers and sisters, there's a, a profound point here. Okay, and I just want you to say, okay, now hopefully I brought you to this point, and let me just show you that what Satan is doing to Jesus, I've talked about the switch. I've talked about him passing the test over here in the first and second one. And now he's going to accept the fact that, yes, you are the Messiah. Yes, your father loves you. And yes, you're all with him now. Let's do this. Let's, if you have so much faith in your father, then let's glorify him. Let's boldly step out, jump off this parapet. You know what's going to happen. Those angels are going to come and grab you and keep you from falling. And the whole process of God's redemptive plan is going to start falling into place. Now it's very close to what the father said he was going to do, but we're just going to improve upon it a little bit. Go ahead and step out in faith, Jesus. But that's not what he's asking him to do, brothers and sisters. This is not a test of Jesus' faith. This is a manifestation of his doubt if he does what the devil wants him to do, and he will be putting his father to the test. It's not a test of his faith. It's a test of the father. And how the father will react. And brothers and sisters, I cannot tell you how many Christians end up as ineffective Christians because they have fallen for that trick. <laughs> oh, I'm going to be bold. Yeah. You know, I have faith and I'm going to step out and I'm going to do this. Yes, I'm going to go to Cabal and talk about the gospel on the corners. You know, I'm going to step out in faith because I'm going to show God how much I believe in him. Well, that's okay to go to Cabal and preach the gospel on the corners if that's where God has called you. But it's not a way to show your faith because what you're actually doing is putting God to the test. 
And when that fails, when he doesn't respond, now he responded with, he would always respond with Jesus, a different story, you're different. When he doesn't respond, what happens to so many Christians? They give up. They get disillusioned. God wasn't there when I prayed and I thought he would be. And the reason is, it's because it wasn't real faith. What you're doing is putting God to the tests. Well, with that as the devil's uh, attempt, uh, let's take a look at how Jesus responds. Look in the 12th verse. And Jesus answered him, it is said. Now, that's another way of saying it is written. I mean, he could have easily just said that. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Once again, completely undaunted by the enemy's attempt to pervert scripture. Jesus stays true to what he has done in each one of these uh, of, of, of these temptations. He comes right back with the truth of God and as Mike Tyson would say, our brother Freddie told us, smack him right in the face with it. Show him the truth of God as it should be given. This time he quotes again from Deuteronomy 6. He's quoted each time from Deuteronomy. And he quotes and says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the tests. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus also quotes Selectively, He doesn't quote the whole verse. Not for the same reason the devil did. Not to manipulate it or corrupt it or use it in a way that it wasn't intended. But rather because virtually every, the devil knew what he was talking about. He knew it came from Deuteronomy 6.16. Most of Luke's audience knew what followed that up. And so there wasn't a need to include it. You and I don't know the Bible that well. We are not that in tune to scripture. So we need to go in and see what on earth did Jesus leave out? Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy 6 and the 16th verse, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah or Massa. Remember that? Remember where that was? Remember that's after the, the leading them out of the, of the slavery of Egypt? And, and that's when they had no water and Moses struck the the, uh, the rock and water came out of it. Well, this, they go back. Okay? They go back there. And let me just read you. I wish I had time to go into the entire story that Jesus is making reference to, but it's significant. So let me at least read a couple of verses to you from Exodus 17. This, this is the story. The people thirsted there at Massa or Massah for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Therefore, backing up one, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? And you see, you may not immediately see how grumbling, murmuring, complaining is putting God to the test. But that's what Jesus makes reference to when he answers Satan. Because actually, the children of Israel were complaining when they should not have been complaining. 
In other words, God has brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, taken them through the Red Sea, showed them all those amazing uh, 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 plagues in Egypt, protected them, took them part of the waters of the Red Sea, through they went on dry ground. He destroyed the armies of Pharaoh that were in pursuit, brings them into the desert, feeds them with manna, and has already brought water out of the rock at Massa. I, I, I mean, they should trust him, right? But they don't. You see, I don't want to just pin this on the children of Israel. To so many of us, God is only as good as his last response. He's only as good as his last answer to our prayers. And because we have a need again, that's where the children of Israel are. We need water, Moses, and we need it now, okay? I'm thirsty. My livestock is thirsty. Don't tell me that God did it once, he'll do it again. I need it now. I need it according to my needs and according to my time schedule. And so when you do that, brothers and sisters, you're putting God to the test. You're testing his providence. You're saying, God, if you were really the God who you say you are, if you're really a good God, if you really are going to take care of me, then you are going to respond to what I need when I need it. And if you don't, then I'm going to grumble. So the first way that we see is grumbling is putting God to the test. Well, that's the background of what Jesus says. So let's bring it back. To, to Jesus. And let's go ahead and make uh, some principal statements here. First of all, testing God is doubting God. And doubting God is testing God. Okay, that's a vicious circle. We doubt, we test, we test, we doubt. We doubt, we test, we test, we doubt. Uh, okay, and, and, and so what you end up is constantly Putting God to the test, constantly doubting him. That's what the devil has tried to get Jesus to do. Actually, all through this, he has tried to get Jesus to doubt his father. And now, under the guise of faith, show your faith, Jesus. Jump off because we know your father will catch you. Under the guise of faith, he is asking him to doubt through the back door. Because I want you to test him. And through that, you will be manifesting your doubt in your father. I couldn't get you to do it straight out, but I'm going to try to do it back through the back doors in this way. Once again, notice the way that Jesus answered him. You shall not put your the Lord your God to the test. He knew exactly what the devil was trying to do. Didn't fool him for a moment. He went right to the core of the temptation. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If I were to jump off of this, I would be testing my father and I will not test him in that. So the second reason that Satan does this, the, the, the second objective is to get Jesus to put his father to the test, to create a situation that his father had to perform in. But I think the third reason is the most sinister of all. Because really what he wants Jesus to do is to reverse the roles. He wants him to be the father for a while. You see, you know, the relationship between father and son and Holy Spirit in the Godhead is immutable. 
It is unchangeable. It has always been that way. It always will be that way. The Bible uses words like father and son to help us understand the relationship between the first and second members. But Jesus is the eternally begotten one. That doesn't mean he is created. That doesn't mean there was ever a time that Jesus was not. What it refers to is the filial relationship between father and son. The father decrees the son, according to John 5, is submissive to the father, always does his will and executes the father's will in the as as the word of God and as the lamb of God. And so therefore, Jesus is constantly um, um, saying things like he said in the garden, Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. So what would have happened if he jumped off the parapet? What would have happened? Well, He would have been taking the sovereignty away from his father and holding it himself. I know, God, that you're going to you're going to save me. I realize that because I trust in Psalm 91 because you said you would. But I'm going to determine the time schedule. I'm going to jump off of this parrot pet and push you into a corner corner and make you save me, make you fulfill Psalm 91. See, Jesus knew exactly what the devil wanted him to do to switch. The relationship. Do you know what would have happened if Jesus had done that? Do you realize how serious this is? The universe would implode upon itself. None of us would be here. The the, the God who sustains the universe, the Trinity, one in being and three in persons, would have found a conflict and an incongruity amongst itself and would cease to exist and the universe would implode. And we would not be here. So therefore, this is a serious, serious temptation. And I don't think it's any less serious with us, brothers and sisters, because we try to do it all the time. Every time we put God to the test, how many times during the day do we say, God, I want you to be on my time schedule and not yours? How many times do I push him into a corner and say, God, perform for me, because I need you to perform today in this particular way. We are taking the sovereignty away from him and giving it to ourselves and actually telling God what to do. Well, those are the, I know that they may not seem so obvious to you, but those are the obvious ways that Satan is trying to accomplish an objective. There's a far more subtle way. But let's finish the text first by reading the 13th verse because there's sort of an ominous undertone there. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, we've already said that during this entire 40-day stint in the desert, that Satan was there. I mean, these three at the end, those are the big ones. But that doesn't mean he wasn't constantly... Uh, 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 tempting Jesus. And here it actually says, after he had ended every temptation. I think this is why Hebrews says that he has been tempted in all ways, even as we have. Satan doesn't go away. He doesn't say, I'll see you at the Garden of Gethsemane. He just kind of fades into the shadows. And for the rest of Jesus' life, brothers and sisters, I think he will relentlessly tempt him. In the ways that he's doing now. We know that he did through Peter. When Peter says you know you're not going to the cross. We know that every time he says my soul is troubled. He's thinking about that cross. We know in the garden of Gethsemane. He even asked his father if there's any other way to do this. 
Can you, can you release me from the cross? So we know how much he dreaded it. But we also can assume, I think, that Satan continually attacks him over and over again. But brothers and sisters, I think there's something else here. I think that, once again, we have to look at this and ask, so what are the objectives of the enemy? What did he actually expect to happen here? Did he really think Jesus wouldn't pick up on the omission? Do you think that Jesus didn't know, that he thought that Jesus didn't know Psalm 91 well enough to know that he was quoting it totally out of context? Do you think that Satan actually thinks that Jesus is going to be tricked through those mechanisms to jump off the parapet and make his father come to his rescue? I I don't think so. And granted, Satan is demonically and maniacally deluded. He doesn't have any truth in him, so he doesn't even know what the truth is. But I still think he's diabolically brilliant. He has a criminal mind and he is brilliant in that mind. So I don't think that he is thinking that just in what we have discussed that he is actually going to tempt Jesus. But I think there is a way that he did expect to tempt him. Now, let me tell you, I tell you this all the time. I'm going into my own interpretation, all right? Um, and, and I think it's biblically based and it's sound and there are others who have the same idea, but, uh, I, I always kind of like to tell you when I'm kind of branching out into something that I believe to be true, that I'm not going to preach and teach it to you as the absolute truth of scripture. Scripture points to this, I think, but to me, it is the culmination of what Luke is doing through these temptations. Now let's go back. Okay. Let me just kind of set the groundwork. God has sent his son into the world to do what? Son of man came to be ser- to serve, to not to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. John the Baptist looks at him and says, behold, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Right? This is the mer- mission and the purpose of Jesus. Jesus is the apostle from heaven. He is the son of God. And he has come to this earth to find and rescue those who are lost. To bring them into the kingdom. To pay for their sins. To atone for them. To propitiate, expiate. To uh, wrap them in his righteousness. Okay? That's why he has come. And Jesus knows it and the devil knows it. And God's plan is that through a ministry of teaching, he is going to share the ethical standards of scripture, I mean of heaven, and then he's going to go to the cross where he's going to bear the burden of all the sins of humanity, of all those who put their trust in him. He's going to bear the burden of that so that those sins might be forgiven. That's the plan. That's God's plan. Okay? Now, Satan's already tried to thwart God's plan by making Jesus not believe in his father or distrust his father or doubt the motives of his father. But now he's given up. Okay, so let's go over here. You're the Messiah. Your father loves you. He has come and he has sent you here that you can search and rescue for all those that he has set aside for his pleasure. But I can show you a better way to do it. We can improve upon his plan just a wee bit. I mean, after all, he made that before the foundation of the world, didn't he? I mean, things have changed a little bit. These are the modern times and things aren't the way that they used to be. So let me tell you that I can show you a way that you can be the Messiah now 
without going to the cross. You see, that's the great temptation. That's how he tempted him with all the kingdoms of the world. Look at all these souls. I'll give you every single one of these souls. I will relinquish them. They're mine to give. I have them in bondage. I'll turn them loose to you. If you'll just bow down and worship me. Your soul for all of theirs. That was the essence of that second temptation. And it culminates. It is intensified, I believe, in this third one. You see... I think that Satan expects two things. Now he's got Jesus up on that parapet. Okay, let's just, I know I'm reading a little bit into it, okay? But I'm going to embellish it just a wee bit. There was virtually not a time um, where the temple was not filled with people um, during daylight hours. They opened it at sunrise, they closed it at sunset. And from sunrise to sunset, they're making sacrifices, they're doing prayers. People are jammed, packed into that, coming from all over the known world to worship there at Jerusalem. So I think we can assume, I, we cannot conclude, but we can assume that there were more than just a few eyes there to see Jesus when he jumped off that parapet. So they notice up on the parapet, the most dramatic spot in the entire temple, there's a man standing there. What on earth is he going to do? A crowd gathers to see this. Satan thinks he's in a win-win situation. Two things are going to happen. Jesus is going to jump off of that parapet and hurdle 500 feet to the rocks below. And his father's not going to do anything. (laughs) His father's not going to be fooled. He's not going to respond to being pushed into a corner. And so Jesus falls to the rocks and he dies on those rocks below. He doesn't go to the cross. There is no atonement. There is no sacrifice. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no expiation, propitiation, no righteousness, no resurrection, no ascension, no coronation. He dies and Satan wins. Everything he wants, he gets if Jesus hits that ground. But he knows that's not going to happen. But he's just as likely to win in the other scenario. Because the other scenario is here all these people are watching and to their horror they see the man fall off and begin to plummet down 500 feet to the rocks below. But just before he hits the rocks, the angels of heaven appear in all their power and glory and catch him just before his foot strikes the stone and bears him back up. Oh my goodness, you talk about the electricity, you talk about the word spreading, you talk about people talking about the fact that God has fulfilled Psalm 91, we saw it, it was in front of all of our eyes, God has brought it about and the Messiah is here and Satan says, Jesus, I can give you such a bigger kingdom, I can give you more people than the paltry 120 that you're going to leave behind at the Jerusalem Church of Pentecost. We can have tens of thousands of people, the kind of Messiah that I have already corrupted their understanding into expecting. We can be that Messiah. I can make you the Messiah without the cross. You are going to be powerful. You are going to be the military man. You are going to march against Rome and you are going to have everything that your father wanted. You just don't have to go to the cross to get it. And Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And that's the one thing that Satan could not respond to. Because Jesus remained true to his father. And he stated that true faith, true belief doesn't need proof. 
I don't need to jump off to see if my father is going to catch me before I hit the ground. I don't need to impress these people. That's not the plan. The Holy Spirit is going to move in the hearts of those that God is going to call to himself. I don't need a kingdom according to your plan. Do you realize that if Jesus had done that, Satan would have won the second temptation too? Because that's what he wanted, Jesus to worship him. When you disobey, when you rebel against God, you worship the devil. I know that seems harsh, but when you contradict the desires and the wills of the Father, you are falling in line and glorifying and worshiping the devil. Well, brothers and sisters, the applications for us human beings of this is more than I have time to even consider. I mean, thousands of ways that Satan takes these basic principles that we've discussed here this morning and he uses them to manipulate you. He uses them to tempt you and to fool you and to make you ineffectual as Christians. Now, I could try to just tick off a whole bunch of them, but I'd rather focus on just four in the few minutes that I have left. And actually just three, because I'm going to cut it short. And one of them I'm going to deal with in the after church. There are a variety of ways that we put God to the test. But just out of the text, one of the first ways, and one of the most prevalent ways, is we grumble. We murmur. We complain. We aren't satisfied with our lives, are we? We're not satisfied with our jobs, with our house, with our car. We grumble about our wife or our spouse or our lack of a spouse. We grumble about our kids or our lack of our kids. We grumble about who's in office or who's not in office, the authority that is placed over us. We grumble about our church and our pastor. We grumble about virtually everything that has to do with our lives. And you say, well, wait a minute, I'm not grumbling against God. I'm grumbling about the way things are. You grumble about the way things are. Don't you realize you're grumbling against God's providence because he's sovereign. And and all that is, is because God has ordained it. And if you don't believe that governments are put in place through the, the, the ordaining of God, go read Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and 3. I mean, it's that you can't get any more specific than that. Every single time we grumble, we grumble against God. And every single time we grumble, we doubt. And when we doubt, we put God to the test. God, couldn't you do better than this? Couldn't, couldn't you, couldn't you make my life easier? Couldn't you fix the things that are wrong? I mean, you know, I've done all of these things. I follow you. I believe in you. I pray to you. And you've really fallen down on the job. You put God to the test every single time you grumble. Paul talks about this to the, um, um, Corinthians when he said, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer, capital D. James in his characteristic straightforward matter says, do not grumble against one another brothers so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge, capital J, is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, I, 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 I don't think that we can make the argument, most of us, that, oh, I'm just grumbling against the things in my life and I'm not grumbling against God because most of us actually do grumble against God actively. 
Every single time we ask God, are you kidding me? There's a beautiful picture, I think, that uh, sort of illustrates this in The Fiddler on the Roof. You, you remember in The Fiddler on the Roof, if you've seen that movie, where the Cossacks come in and they destroy the wedding and they burn and, and, and everything is a jumbles and everyone is running around trying to pick up the stuff and here's Reb Tevye. Are you? Where were you? How, how did you let that happen? How could you possibly, as a good God, allow these things to happen? How can you allow my loved one to die? How can you allow me to be sick? How can you allow me to lose my job or lose my house or a million other things that we blame God for? Every single time we do it, we put God to the test. Every time we do it, we take the sovereignty to ourselves. Second way that we put God to the test is when we back him into a corner, you know, when we create a situation whereby he must perform. That's exactly what the devil is trying to get Jesus to do. Jump off this tower so that you can, you know, force the father to do your bidding. Now, every one of these temptations, and I don't have time to go into them in any depth, but every one of these temptations, well, they have different levels, nuances. There are some extreme examples and there are some subtle examples. And actually, some of the extreme examples are good for us because we can look at them and they're so blatantly putting God to the test that we can recognize them as the corruption and the heresy that they actually are. It's, it's kind of like uh, um, we, 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 we see them graphically explained for us. And so in modern Christendom, we have more than our fair share of people who are actively, actually in their teaching, putting God to the test. One of the most egregious calls itself prosperity theology with theology in quotes or the the health and wealth gospel, gospel being in quotes, or probably the more proper name is name it, claim it. Where I name something, I name a word, and I claim it to be so. I say, God, because you told me through Jesus that whatever you ask in my name, actually expressing your faith, my Father will do it. So we step out in faith and we say, oh Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all have Porsches and I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime, no help from my friends. Oh Lord, won't you give me a Mercedes Benz? Did I date myself there? (laughs) But you see how ludicrous that is? You see how silly it is? Okay, so we have that great example. Okay, I know that's a heresy. Okay, there's no way that we're going to be able to claim to God, God, you must do it or else I'm not going to believe in you or else I'm going to call you on the carpet to fulfill what you promised me to fulfill. But, you know, sometimes I think that the downside of having those graphic illustrations is that we tend to judge them and not look at the nuances or the subtle way that we do the same thing. It's kind of like Jesus' parable or illustration in the Sermon on the Mount in reverse. He said, why are you looking at the speck in your neighbor's eye rather than the plank in your own eye? Well, sometimes when we see a plank in a heretic's eye, we don't recognize that we have that speck in ours. 
And I think, brothers and sisters, that this is one of the ways that we regularly put God to the test. I used to travel with a guy who was known for being in so many situations where God was just amazingly glorified, constantly in danger, constantly in harm's way, and would come back and tell people all of these glorious stories about how God got him out of it. Kay hated it when I used to travel with him because she knew that I was going to end up doing things I had no business doing. And I can tell you something, brothers and sisters, I ended up some places that the only reason that I am here is through the grace of God. But I'll never forget, was at a Bible study one time when he was doing this and a, a wiser professor of mine just really dressed him down from Scripture. I mean, in front of everybody, he says, you're not glorifying God. You are creating these situations to glorify yourself. You're not expressing faith. You're expressing doubt. What you are actually doing is you are putting God to the tests because you created a situation and you are, you're asking God to get you out of it. True faith, true belief doesn't need proof. Brothers and sisters, I believe in gravity. Do you believe in gravity? Do you believe that it's a law of physics? Do you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you step off of a 30 story building, you will fall? Do you need to prove that? Do you feel the need to go and step off of a building to see if you would fall? Right? You know you would fall. You believe in gravity. Do you believe in God that much? Do you believe in your Lord? Do you believe in his promises? Do you recognize his promises so that you don't have to ask him to prove those promises? You don't have to back him into a corner. You know he's good. You know he will always bring out what is good in the end. You know that when you pray that your daughter will be healed and he doesn't heal her, that he is a good and a loving and a gracious God. And that he has a plan. And you trust in that plan and you leave it there. You don't take it and say, I'll trust in you as long as you fix things. Right? That's not trust. That's not belief. That's doubt. When you need to put God to the tests. The third way that we put God to the test is by trying to improve upon his plan. You see, that's what the devil wanted Jesus to do. He wanted him to improve upon the plan of redemption. Okay, I know God's got this whole plan, but let's just alter it a wee bit. You can still have your faith in your father. You can still trust his ability. But I'm going to show you a way that you can do it without going to the cross. You can be the Messiah. You can be a crossless Messiah. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm actually going to leave that one to the after church because it's expansive. And, and, and I don't... I, I don't want to take the time to develop it here, so I'll develop it there, but at least I have stated it because it's this fourth one where I think most of us live. It's the fourth way that we put God to the test. We put God to the test through our own indolence, through our own laziness, through our own inactivity, through our own complacency. And you say, how on earth 
am I doing that? Well, without getting into the theological details, if you notice the first three that we just talked about, we are attacking God's sovereignty and pulling that sovereignty away from him. In this one, we are denying our own human responsibility. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, two parallel truths that never intersect, but they are Parallel truths that are both taught by scripture. And so therefore, we are responsible for our own, uh, held responsible for our own actions. And so many people, brothers and sisters, are sitting around waiting for God to take care of everything. After all, God is sovereign, right? None of his elect are ever going to go to hell. Every single one of them are going to heaven. So why do I need to evangelize? Why do I need to share the gospel? You know, I'm going to pray for the souls of all the people in the world. And I'm going to ask God to lead them all to Christ. But I'm not going to open my mouth. Because you see, I'm indolent. I'm lazy. I'm going to put God to the test. God, you do it. People love their church. And they pray for their church. And they pray that God will bless the church and it will grow and many new people will come to the church and our fellowship will grow. And yet when the plate comes to support the ministry, it just passes them right by. Or else they put a pittance in it. You're putting God to the test, brothers and sisters. When you say, I love my church and I want to to be protected, but you you don't donate a dime to it. You're asking God to do it all. I was kind of surprised last week. I gave you an illustration that must have hit home with some of you because I heard an awful lot about the bad eating um, illustration that I gave you, you know. <laughs> so I just want to build on that, you know. It's, 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 it's like having that kind of a diet, you know, eating all that garbage and putting it in your body. It, it, it's like thinking that the word organic actually means dirty, That the word non-GMO is anti-American, you know? It it is not understanding or taking any ability to to try to eat well. You eat the garbage, you smoke heavily, you drink heavily, you stay at all night partying, and you sit on the couch for the rest of the day, you don't exercise at all. And yet you pray to God for health. You pray for him, Lord, take care of my health. Take care of my, keep me active. Don't allow me to, to fall apart. And yet you do absolutely nothing towards that end. It's like the guy who surrounds himself with pornography and then asks that the God will that God will keep him from looking at it. Or the girl who accepts a date from a known womanizer, a guy with a long reputation of seducing women and she wears a provocative dress and allows herself to get drunk and then prays for purity. Those are all examples of putting God to the test. God, you take care of it because I'm not going to do any of it. But I think that the way that it most manifests itself for Christians. Every single one of us, brothers and sisters, has an inherent desire that God gives us when he regenerates us. And that's that we would be more like Christ. That we would be sanctified. That we would walk more closely with him. That God would use us in a powerful way to accomplish his will and to build his kingdom. This is an inherent desire in Christians. And yet so many Christians do nothing 
to bring that about. The means of grace are just something I say on Sunday. You know, study scripture as they should. They don't come to the Bible studies or the after church or they don't put the emphasis on the, on the, uh, sacraments that they should or, or, or come and worship corporately or get involved with the activities of the church or spend their time in prayer that they should be doing. They don't do anything in and of themselves and yet they pray, God put me to use and use me in a mighty way. Do you realize that? That's a good prayer. We, we want that prayer, but if you're not doing anything to help that along, then you're putting God to the test. You're saying, God, do it all. I'm going to be lazy and I'm not going to do anything. And I want you to take complete control. So brothers and sisters, uh, I'm going to leave it there. But I do want to just leave you with this thought. When Jesus makes this statement to Satan, on the one hand, this is a command that we can more or less take and apply to ourselves. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And I've just mapped out several ways that we do this. But don't forget that Jesus didn't use this necessarily in that way. With him, it was a defense. It was a buckler and a shield. It was the response to a head on attack of temptation. So the next time the devil tempts you in one of these ways or any ways, you have your ammunition. You have your weapon. You have your response. He's already given it to you. Can you say it with me? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Amen? Lord, we know that as we make our way through this world, we're going to be tempted. We know that. And we know that we will not suffer any temptation that is too great for us. And we also know that we will not suffer any temptation that you, when you were here with us, did not suffer probably a gazillion times more, infinite times more, or to an infinite degree, more than we will ever suffer it. And yet we are so weak, we continually fall, where you never did. We glorify you for that because it is your righteousness that we will have when we stand before your Father. But Lord, we would, especially those who truly know you and love you and follow you and want to be your disciples, we really desperately want to be good disciples. And so help us as we face each and every temptation to be able to respond as you did recognizing that if we respond the way the devil wants us to, we are going to be putting your father to the test. And we don't want to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please?